Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number two. Uh, probably not a very unfamiliar passage of scripture to you. Maybe it is, and if it is so, that's great. And, uh, but probably for the majority of us, that is not. And, uh, and so we uh, have been walking through, those of you who may be new with us, we've been walking through a series, an Advent series that we have entitled Glad Tidings. And we've been looking at love and joy and peace. And this morning we close out this series on Christmas Eve, and we are going to look at hope. And I don't know about you, but I find this true of myself. Oftentimes I use that word hope really in a wrong way. And I, I don't use it in the right context. I don't use it uh, with the right frame of mind. And, and it's probably true of you as well that we use that word hope so flippantly to really describe so many things that the word really shouldn't be used for. And you say, what do you mean? And let me give you some examples, okay? Because I, I think the word hope is so often used in the wrong context, especially around this time of year of the Christmas season. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe this is true of you today. Maybe you're, uh, you know, our Harvest Kids goes up through fifth grade. And so maybe you're a sixth grader here today, or maybe you're 75, 80, 90. I don't know how far I need to go up. If I go up past 90, man, we're glad you're here today. Uh, if I, but whatever you may be, maybe this is true of you. And this is how you are using the word hope. You say this, I hope that that loved one gets me blank for Christmas fill in the blank. And you're so hoping for that gift, whatever it may be, for that Lexus or Mercedes with the big bow showing up on your driveway. I won't ask you if that's happened to you. If it has, that's great for you. It hasn't happened to me yet, nor do I ever think it will happen. But nevertheless, I don't know what it is, but maybe you're saying, I mean, I hope that my loved one, my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, my friend, whatever, my grandparent, whatever it may be, gets me this for Christmas. And that's how you use the word hope. Maybe others of us are like this. I hope that Christmas bonus is coming in the mail. And you're thinking that. <laughs> you're longing for that. You're, <coughs> excuse me, using the word hope for that. And you're like, man, it should have come already, but maybe it got caught up in the mail and, and maybe it'll come on Tuesday because we have a holiday. I don't, I don't know, but maybe you're using the word hope that way. How about this one? I hope that she will say yes when I propose. Curious. Anybody get engaged uh, in the last few days? Um, I would ask you if you're doing that today, but that would kind of be uh, counterintuitive, right? Uh, how many, anybody get engaged in, over the Christmas holidays? Anybody? I don't see any hands. Dudes, let me, guys, let me tell you something. You're smart if you do this. You know why? Because you killed two birds with one stone. Get the Christmas gift and you ask her to marry you. You know why I'm saying that? Because that's what this guy did like 20 years ago. So maybe that's you. And you're like, man, I hope she'll say yes. I sure hope she'll, she'll say yes. Hopefully you have an idea that she will before you ask that question. But maybe that's how you're using the word hope. Uh, maybe it's this one. I hope that we can avoid tension with my extended family during Christmas. Yeah. Um, my extended family is here. I, I, I said this at the 9 a.m. They were here at the 9 a.m. I said, I have not 
you know, said that in very explicit terms, but maybe that's you, right? You say to yourself, these are the things that we're not going to talk about. We're not going to talk about this, 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 and especially not this because you know where it'll lead. Anybody else like that? Don't raise your hand. Just, just in your mind, nod. Yeah, maybe that's you. Maybe it's this, man. This is the first year that this responsibility has ever laid squarely on your shoulders. And you're using the word hope this Christmas season like this. I hope that the Christmas dinner will turn out. And you're hoping that. And it is all on you this year. You're like, man, my mom always did this. And now it's my responsibility. Maybe that's how you're using the word hope. And then this is more serious but I think we would be naive to like go into this message this morning and around these holidays and not think that there's probably some, if not many in this room, that are using the word hope this way. They're just saying, man, I hope I can get through the Christmas holidays. Like as joyous as this is for many of us this time of year, let's not be naive in thinking that there might be people even right next to us in our seats right now that this is a very difficult time for them. They've lost loved ones. Maybe a relationship has been strained and that is highlighted during this Christmas season, whatever it may be. And there's people that are just saying, using that word hope, I just hope that I can get through this season. We use hope so often in the wrong context with the wrong mindset. And we use it almost as like, I wish. Like we use it synonymous with the word wish. Like, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I sure wish it would happen. Maybe it will happen. Well, let me give you a definition of what the word hope, I believe, conveys. Here's the definition I came up with if you're taking notes. Write this down. Hope is a settled confidence that God is present and working out his plan in the midst of every one of my problems. That's hope. That's the word hope that we find in the scriptures that we celebrate today in this wonderful time of year. Hope is a settled confidence that God is present and working out his plan in the midst of every one of my problems. And so during this time of year in this Christmas season, if I said, well, how do you define Christmas? Maybe even some of you would use the very words that we looked at, that we've looked at in this series, and you would describe Christmas as love, or you would define Christmas as joy, or you would define Christmas as peace, or you would even define Christmas as hope. But can I encourage you that those aren't the definitions of Christmas, those are the results of knowing what Christmas is. And so this morning, what I want to do, the title of this message today is this, Christmas Defined. Christmas defined. And here's the definition of Christmas that I want to give to you today. Christmas is this. Christmas is about a person who solved your greatest problem by providing you with the greatest present. That's how we're defining Christmas this morning. Christmas is about a person who solved your greatest problem by providing you with the greatest present. Can we look at Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14? Ron did such a great job reading that this morning, but can we look at it again? Look at what it says in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So if we've defined Christmas as it's about a person who solved your greatest problem with the greatest present, then here's what I really want to do out of that definition is simply ask three questions that that definition really poses. Who is the person? What is your greatest problem? And what is the greatest present? Simply those three questions that I believe this passage of Scripture will answer for us as we walk through it. So let's deal with the first question. Who is this person that Christmas is all about? And I focus your attention again at the beginning of verse 11. So jump down there. Where the, angels, where the angel says to the shepherd, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. So when we ask that question, who is this person? Can we just eliminate some things? Can we eliminate some answers? So let's just do that before we do answer the question. Here's what you need to understand. The person that Christmas is about is not you. So just look to the person next to you and say, it's not you. Yeah, some of you, I'm looking around, some of you took great joy in that. <laughs> great joy. Too much joy. But Christmas is not about you. It's not about your spouse. It's really not about your kids. It's not about Santa. It's not about any of those things. Not that any of those things are bad, but, but so often we get caught up in the fever of what everyone else is telling us Christmas is. And when I look at this passage of Scripture and what the angels say to the shepherds, we answer that question, who is this person and we answer it, first of all, by reminding ourselves of what the angels say. This person's name is Jesus. That's who the person is of the Christmas story. Not you, not your loved ones, not anybody else. So there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But the person that Christmas is about is Jesus. And in Matthew 121, we'll, we find that Joseph Mary's husband, who married Mary, is told by an angel of what to name this promised one, and he's told to name this baby Jesus. That's who this person is. But his name is not only Jesus, but he's also the Messiah. See, that's a word that literally means the promised one. And so often we glaze through this Christmas story, and I don't know if you have this tradition we do in our home or in the morning, the morning of Christmas, we'll read through Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and many of you have maybe have that same tradition or someone similar where you read a passage of Scripture that talks about the Christmas story, and we glaze over so much. But what I find so interesting is there's not very much in the Bible about the Christmas story, but what is there, every word is calculated and has a purpose. 
So when the angels say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, it's getting across the idea to the shepherds that this person that Christmas will be about for the rest of time is not only named Jesus, but he's also the Messiah because it says this child will be born in the city of David. And if you look at Micah 5.2, which we looked at last week, Micah 5.2, written way long before this ever happened, hundreds of years The prophet Micah says that in the town of Bethlehem, the Messiah will be born. So even the angels uttering this is saying the promised one, the Messiah, is here. How many of you encountered this, and I know I have, is that when you're talking about Jesus, you get many people that would simply say, you know what, Jesus was a religious leader, like so many others out there of the different religions. He was a religious leader. He was a good man. He taught good values. I mean, I've been told that more times than I can count. But I find it interesting that you won't find any of the religions that give prophecies of one's coming, like you do with Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Let me give you some examples. There's no prophecies alerting the world to the coming of Muhammad, who's the father of Islam. No prophecies of Joseph Smith, who's the father of Mormonism. No prophecies. You may not be familiar with this name, but you're familiar with the teaching. There's no promises of Charles Taze Russell and really being the father of Jehovah's Witnesses. There's no promises of Siddhartha Gautama, who has looked at the, the father of Buddhism. No, no prophecies. But there is prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to a Messiah, a promised one who will come And the Old Testament was completed in 450 B.C., hundreds of years before this happens in Luke chapter 2. And it's interesting, when you comb through the Old Testament, you'll find over 300 prophecies that point to the Messiah's life, death, and resurrection. Over 300. Now, here's what's interesting in my studies as I was looking over this passage again is what's the mathematics involved in the probability of someone fulfilling that many prophecies? So that's a question way out of this guy's comfort zone because I'm not a mathematician by any means. But what I found interesting is those who were, that they went through the odds of anyone fulfilling the amount of prophecies and it was staggering the results. Let me give them to you. One person fulfilling eight prophecies, eight, not 300, eight, Here's the probability, one in a quadrillion. Like when I saw that, I was like, what number has 18 zeros? Had to look that one up, quadrillion. So one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in a quadrillion. You're not buying a lottery ticket with those odds. One person in eight, keep going. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies, 48, not 348. This is crazy. I don't even know what this number is, but it's one. There's a one chance in 10 to the 157th power. So there's some people in here, I'm sure, that are mathematicians, and so you understand that number. I don't. Here's what I know. It's basically impossible. 
So that's for 48, let alone 300. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the person that, is, that the Christmas story is all about is not just Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And he's not just the Messiah, but look at what else the angels call him in verses 11 and 12. He is your Savior. I want you to understand that today, not from my lips, from God's word, that the person that we are proclaiming today, the person that we have sung about, the person that we are reading about, the person that we celebrate this time of year, he is your savior. And he's described as Christ the Lord. And the reason why the angels do that is they want to get across the idea that this is God putting on human flesh. Our choir read that this morning, John 1, 14. The word, capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's your savior. And I want to point your attention to verse 12. Because have you ever asked yourself, like, why do the angels say to the shepherds, here's the sign that you will know who the child is? Because it says there, look at it. It says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. What's the significance of the swaddling clothes and lying in a manger? And many people have many different thoughts. And I wouldn't say that there's necessarily any wrong with them. And we don't know the exact reason why they're swaddling clothes. But it was basically angels saying, you'll know who that baby is because it will be in a manger in swaddling cloths or clothes. Some people say this foretells that Jesus, Jesus' death and his burial. Maybe so. We don't know exactly why. But I thought this was interesting in my study that a Messianic rabbi, in other words, a rabbi who believes that Jesus was the Messiah, his name was Jason Sobel. And he gave some context of this time in which we're reading about. And one of the things that he said is many people believe that the field where the shepherds were, the field that they believed that they were, was where Levitical shepherds would keep the sheep for temple sacrifices. You see, in the Old Testament, God wanted his people to understand that their sin demanded a price that they couldn't pay. So he instituted sacrifices. So what they would do is they would take a lamb a spotless lamb, a lamb that couldn't have any blemish, and they would bring that to the temple, and that lamb would be sacrificed, and the blood would be shed to symbolize that something had to pay for their sin. And so in this time, these shepherds kept these sheep that were used for temple sacrifices. And one of the requirements that God had is this lamb had to be spotless. It had to be perfect. It couldn't have any blemish whatsoever. And so what the shepherds were due that, that Rabbi Jason pointed out is the shepherds, as they took these lambs to the temple in order to protect them from having any blemish in any spot, what they would do is they would wrap these lambs in swaddling claws to protect them so that they wouldn't have one spot, one blemish on their way to be presented to the priests at the temple. And it isn't it interesting that we find in the New Testament, even when Jesus is full grown and he begins his earthly ministry and John the Baptist, who was his cousin, looks at Jesus and he calls Jesus in John 1, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's your Savior. He was born in swaddling claws to symbolize 
that he was the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior, the Lamb that would take away our sins. Who is this person? He's Jesus. Here's the second question. Well, what is our greatest problem? What's your greatest problem? What's my greatest problem? And here's what we need to understand. Your greatest problem, and I'm in there with you, and my greatest problem is a sin problem. It's your problem, it's my problem, is I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And I've never had an encounter before with someone where I had to convince them that they were a sinner. Never had that happen. And because each of us have a sin problem, here's a common fear we also have. And it's worded in this question, am I good enough? You ever ask yourself that? Am I good enough? Because I know I'm a sinner. And I hope that one day, as I'm passed from this life to the next and wondering, will I be in heaven or will I not be in heaven? That I'm thinking to myself, man, I hope that if the good outweighs the bad that I do, that I'll be able to get in. And so our whole lives, we live our life with this question, am I good enough? And if you're honest with yourself and you're here today, you would say, your, say to yourself, I never have any confidence in answering yes to that question. Why? Because our greatest problem is our sin problem. And look at what it says in verse 10. Look at what the angels say to the shepherds. They say to the shepherds, fear not. Like, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. What the angels are saying is, is we've come to bring you amazing news. But here's the thing. Before I can appreciate the good news, I have to embrace the bad news. And here's the bad news because you and I have a sin problem. Here's the bad news. Romans 3.10, it's found in Romans 3.10 that says, none is righteous, no, not one. There's no one that's righteous. There's no one that's perfect. There's no one who's without sin, no, not one. And because there's no one who's righteous and there's no one who's perfect on this earth, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. So because none is righteous, then what does that mean? That means that every one of us have sinned. We already said that. Our greatest problem is our sin problem. And because we have a sin problem, that means we've fallen short of God's standard. That there's a holy God who's perfect. And because he's perfect, he demands perfection. And because he demands perfection, that means I can't meet that standard. Which means that I can't have a relationship with him. And I can't know without a shadow of a doubt on my own that I will be with him forever in heaven one day when I pass from this life to the next. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's many of us, and those of us who haven't placed our faith and trust in the person of Jesus, have all been in this place where we think to ourselves, well, wait a minute, I'm a good person. Like, I love my wife, I love my kids, I, I, I dropped some money in the Salvation Army bucket when I went to the mall yesterday, or whatever it is, and we look at all the good things that we've done, because we're trying to answer that question that we all have, am I good enough? But Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous deeds... All of the good things that we do in the eyes of a perfect God are like a polluted garment. Why? Because he can't overlook the fact that we have a sin problem. And so anything that we do good to try to overcome that sin is simply looked at as a polluted garment. He can't excuse our sin. He can't look away from our sin because he's perfect. And Romans 6.23 tells us what we deserve for our sin. It says, for the wages of sin is death. 
That's what I deserve because of my sin, of my sin. That's what you deserve because of your sin. It's death. Not only physical death, but also spiritual death, separation from God for all of eternity. So if my sin separates me from having a relationship with a holy God, then what do I do? Some of you are like, man, I'm so glad I'm hearing this on Christmas Eve. Like, this was so encouraging. Thank you for giving me that invite card and inviting me to come. Some of you may be thinking that right now. But what did I say? Before you can appreciate the good news, you have to understand the bad news. And as we're working through that definition that we gave at the beginning, who is this person? This person is Jesus. He solved my greatest problem. What's my greatest problem? My problem is I'm a sinner. And I can't have a relationship with a holy God. I can't know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die because I've sinned and I've met, fallen short of that standard because of what we've seen in the scriptures that are on the screen. But that leads me to the third question, and it's the greatest one. And it's that question, what is the greatest present? And it's found in verses 13 and 14. Look at what the angels say. And suddenly there was an angel, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, we don't know how many angels there were, but all we know is, is an absolute ton of them. It's a very scholarly thing to say. There was a whole bunch in my mind, though we have no proof of this, I, I wouldn't know why there wouldn't be every single angel that exists singing and praising and declaring this. But look at what they say. Glory to God in the highest. Why? Because on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace has come. Hope has come. Love has come. Joy has come. And what is the greatest present? The greatest present is salvation. That's the greatest present. And what I find interesting is that the angels could have appeared to so many different types of people. I mean, after all, this was king. This was Jesus. This was the creator of the universe. This was the Messiah. This was the savior of the world. And the angels could have appeared to many kings they could have appeared to King Herod, who was the king of the day. They could have appeared to Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar of the day. They could have appeared to them, and they would have every right to. But instead, they chose to appear to the shepherds. And here's what's interesting. Today, we look at shepherds in such a great light, right? How many of you have a manger scene that you have in your house? Raise your hand. You know what I found? Every manger scene has the shepherds. Like, if it didn't have the shepherds in it, you'd be like, what in the world is up with that? But what you need to understand is in this day that the story is written in Luke chapter 2, shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were looked down upon. They had no status. The only class that was below them were the lepers, people with leprosy. And they were not the high and mighty. They were not the esteemed. No Jewish boy said when his dad says, what do you want to be when you grow up, Isaiah? I want to be a shepherd, dad. Nobody ever said that. But I think it's so awesome that the angels appear to the lowest of the low. And there's a profound truth there that I want to emphasize today. That Jesus Christ comes to every man, woman, and child who understand that they're not self-sufficient, they're not high and mighty, but they're in need of a Savior. And Jesus comes to every person person that's postured that way. 
that understands I have a great problem. It's my sin and I need a savior. And if that's you today, I promise you, Jesus will not turn you away because what does it say again in verse 10? It says, this good news was for all people, not some people, all people. And you may be here today and you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you have the hope for eternity but how are you taking the hope for eternity and allowing you to have hope in whatever present circumstance you're encountering? Because can we go back to our definition of hope? Hope is a settled confidence that God is present and working out his plan in the midst of every one of my problems. And my settled confidence in knowing that is because I know that that Messiah, that person who was Jesus, who was my savior, solved my greatest problem, gave me my greatest hope, gave me the greatest present that I'll ever be given. So why should I not have hope in whatever I'm encountering right now? God is present. He's in the midst of my problems. He's working out his plan because he worked out his greatest plan in my life. Our Kent Hughes, who's a Bible commentator, says this, it is not enough to hear about Jesus. It's not enough to peek in the manger and say, oh, how nice. What a lovely scene. It gives me such good feelings. The truth is, even if Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but not within you, you would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must be born into your heart. Religious sentiment, even at Christmas time, without the living Christ is a yellow brick road to darkness. So many of us know John 3, 16 and 17 so well, right? We, we live in an area of the country where it's probably more known than a lot of places. But John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And how do I receive that greatest present? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How do I receive that greatest present? Today, if I've never done that before in my life and I've been trying to mask that fear, am I good enough, am I good enough, am I good enough? Is it gonna be enough when I pass from this life to the next? And maybe for the first time or the hundredth time, you've heard these verses many times before, or maybe you've never heard them before, and you've come to the realization you can never be good enough. But that's what makes the greatest presence such good news, that Jesus Christ was good for you. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his love for us in this way, that in the midst of my sin, that in the darkest place of my sin, that's when God loved me that he didn't love me based on potential of what he thought I could be. He loved me at my worst. It's the greatest present. And Romans 10, 9 tells us how to receive that present where it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right now in the quietness of your seat, you can call out to God and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I understand it's my greatest problem. I, never, I understand I'm never gonna be good enough, but for the first time, I realize that you came 
to live a perfect life, to die the death that I deserved at Romans 6, 23 says is what my wages for my sin. And you rose again. And Lord, I'm believing that you are my greatest present. And you can walk out of here, a child of God. That's the awesome thing about this greatest present. It's simple enough for a child to understand because it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the person who solved your greatest problem by providing you with the greatest present. Every head bowed and every eye closed in this place. Because there may be people in this room today who have never placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Your trust has been in you and the good that you do. And so I wanna allow you to have the opportunity to call out to God in the quietness of your seat. There's no magical prayer. It's just simply saying, Lord, I put my trust in you as my savior, not in the good that I've done. Lord, I see that my good is never good enough. And I'm believing that you lived, you died, you rose again for my sins. So let's just take a moment in this room and give people the opportunity to receive the greatest present from the greatest person for our greatest problems.